Ryan sent me that song earlier in the week. I think I watched it on Friday. And um, and I thought, man, I'm glad we're doing that song because that is probably the perfect lead-in to what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, The song talks about the heart of God, and so what we're going to talk about today is the reality that everything that happens to us in life, and I just want to pause and I want you to consider how all-encompassing that word everything is. That's like one of the things we tell couples don't say. Like, don't say everything, don't say nothing, don't say never. You always, no, not always, you never, no, not never, maybe rarely, everything, okay. Everything that happens to us in this life, God either directly causes or he purposefully allows. That's easy to believe with the good stuff, right? I mean, we were out with a couple this past Friday night who were getting married a month and three days from today. Uh, And it was amazing. Like, you know, you could just feel their joy. You could feel their enthusiasm. Like, you know, we've been married almost 30 years. Like, we're getting drawn up into it. Like, we're jacked. We're excited. We can't wait for the wedding. It's going to be amazing. That is like one of those things that you look at and you go, oh, Lord, you are kind. You know, like, this is awesome. Thank you so much. You know, and then, but many of us have suffered the bitter betrayal and disappointment of divorce and all of the wounds that come from it. Is God in that? And if he is, is he kind? I got hired, yay, I got fired. What? I had a great doctor's report, looks like I'm going to make it after all. I had a terrible one, looks like I might not make it. Like, where is the Lord in all of these things? Is he standing over here somewhere, just sort of like separate and apart from them, and then when they happen to us, he's as surprised as we are, he's as aghast as we are, he's as helpless as we are? Or has he said, no, my child, to whom I am kind, whom I gave the life of my son to claim for myself, who I have a plan for, not just in this tiny little life. We're trying to compress all goodness and evil into this life, right? We want all justice to happen for us here. Like, like this is it. And when we die, then that's it. And it's like, oh, it's too late. And God's like, sorry, I wear a different watch. Like he is preparing us for all of eternity. His plans and purposes extend beyond the grave. Is that God out there or is he right here in the midst of this, whatever this is? So as we continue our study of the book of 1 Kings, we come to 1 Kings 12 today. And if you've been doing your personal worship, then you know we come to the beginning of the reign and rule of a king named Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the brand new king of Israel who died, Solomon did in chapter 11. Okay, and what else happens in chapter 12? I'm just going to summarize it. He loses most of the kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a lot, guys. Ten of the twelve tribes come to Rehoboam and they go, okay, so here's the deal. Um, We reject you as our king. We're going to anoint our own king named Jeroboam. Kind of confusing. And we're going to establish our own kingdom. And you already know the reason why. Like, I mean, if you've been reading along in the book, if you've been following along with us, you know that the last chapter, chapter 11, before Solomon died, God came to Solomon and said, listen, when you die, here's what's going to happen. Rehoboam is going to become king and 10 of the 12 tribes are going to leave. Like, I'm going to divide this kingdom that you have poured your life into and you're so super proud of. And here's why I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because you've abandoned me. I'm going to do it in judgment on you for leading all of my people into idolatry and for that matter, in judgment on them, ultimately for the purpose of bringing them back to me in the end. But you get the idea? So you enter into chapter 12, and you already know why it's going to happen. And then you watch it happen, and that's the payoff. The question isn't why, it's how. 
how is what communicates to us. Like how is what matters for our own lives. How does he do it? He does it through the evil. He does it through the wickedness. He does it through the tyrannical intentions and heart and foolishness of this man, Rehoboam. The people of Israel come to Rehoboam and they're like, listen, your dad was a tyrant, which by the way, he was. He was oppressive. He disadvantaged us to advantage himself and all of his cronies and all of his friends. You need to lighten our load. If you will do that, we will follow you. If you don't do that, eh, we're going to consider our options. So what does he do? Well, he goes to the old men of the palace. He goes and he finds his dad's advisors and said, okay, guys, so here's the deal. This is the proposal. What do you think? And they're like, oh, man, listen, we profited big time, but these guys are right. Like your dad was a tyrant and he was oppressive and he disadvantaged them and he advantaged himself and all of us. And we're super thankful for that. But if you don't lighten the load, these people are going to branch off. They're going to anoint their own king. They're going to start their own kingdom. Do what they tell you to do and they'll love you. They'll go, oh, he's better than his dad, and gladly follow. And then he goes to his friends, the young men of the palace. And he says, guys, what do you think? And they say, you know what? You need to be tough. You got to be strong. You need to let these people know who the boss is. Like, you need to put them in their place. You need to say to these guys, hey, you know what? You thought my dad was a tyrant? You haven't seen a tyrant. Let me show you a tyrant. He was oppressive. Uh-huh. His load was heavy. Where do you see me? So you know what he does? He follows the advice of his friends. And 10 of the 12 tribes say, all right, well, we're out. We're out. So what do you get out of that? Well, at least in part, you get out of that, that God accomplishes his good and perfect will, his plans and his purposes for Rehoboam, for the whole nation, for us sometimes through broken, sinful people and what they say and what they do and through events that, you know, maybe we saw coming and maybe we didn't, but man, I'll tell you what, they're tough when they arrive. And where is God? Is he over there? No. He's right here. It's one of the lessons of that story. Frankly, it's one of the lessons of the Bible. It's like one of the lessons that you see repeatedly as you make your way through the Bible. God is in charge of not most things, not 99%. of No, he's in charge of everything. And you have to deal with the all-comprehensive nature of that word, like everything, because this one's easy, this one's not. Are you sure he's involved in this? Because that's hard for me to buy, and yet consider the option for a second. If he's not involved in this, then this, whatever it is, has no meaning. It has no purpose. Like that alone makes me want him to be involved. Why? Because if you're going to pay the price for something, particularly when it's a heavy, heavy price, you want to get the something, don't you? Like when you're in the midst of it and you're going through it, you don't want to know that God's out there. You want to know that he's in here. You want to know that there's a plan. You want to know that there's a purpose. You want to know that there's hope for deliverance, that there's hope at all, that, that maybe this God is great enough to redeem even this. What does that mean? To bring good out of it, which is exactly what he promises to do. We find this lesson again and again and again in the Bible. We see it most profoundly in the cross of Jesus Christ where God takes the most evil act ever which is the crucifixion, the murder of the perfectly innocent son of God. And what does he do? He says, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I've ordained this so that I might accept and receive his innocent blood as the full payment for all of your guilt. So that I might bring you in as my child, 
as my son or as my daughter so that you might know my kind intentions, so that you might be the recipient of my love and of my grace and of my mercy and of my wisdom and of my perspective, etc., etc., so that you might have me and so that I might have you. But I think we see this lesson most uniquely and profoundly and clearly played out actually in the life of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, and it's a super familiar story. Why is it really familiar? Because it's unbelievably helpful. And it's helpful because it awakens me to this reality, and you, I hope, this morning as well, okay, that that when I am maligned, that when I am slandered, that when I am defrauded, like that when somebody injures me somehow, when they come along and they take from me whatever it is that they take from me, when they abuse me, when they hurt me, when they injure, whatever, or... When some desolating event happens in my life, expected or unexpected, or when I just look around at the world, which I do seem to do a lot right now, and I just go, what in the world is going on here? Like, we've lost our minds. God is not out here somewhere. Distant, separate, disconnected. Just as surprised as I am. Just as aghast as I am. Just as helpless as I am going, well, I hope somebody steps up here and helps out Tom because, you know, he's in a jam, you know, like he's calling the angels go over going, wait, look at this. What's going to happen next? No, as hard and as painful as it might be, he's here. He's with me. He knows what's going to happen next because he's planned it out. And his plans and his purposes and his heart are good. If you know the story of Joseph, and I want you to consider it from Joseph's perspective. I want you to feel it as Joseph. Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons born to Jacob, but he is the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. That's, can we just stop and just mention that that seems weird? Like, just stop for a second and think about that. Jacob has two wives, different day, different culture, different age, not that terribly unusual back then. But let's develop the dysfunction for a second, okay? It would be dysfunctional enough just to have two wives, but it's far worse than that. They're sisters. Okay, but it's far worse than that. Rachel, the younger sister, is physically, at least, more attractive than her older sister, Leah. And Jacob never wanted to marry Leah. He only ever loved and only ever wanted to marry Rachel. In fact, on his wedding night, he thought he was getting Rachel. He worked seven years for his father-in-law to pay the dowry to his father-in-law for the hand of Rachel in marriage. And frankly, under the cloak of darkness, and I'm sure that there was wine involved, somehow Laban switches the father-in-law, Rachel, for Leah. So imagine being Leah. Man, and under the cloak of darkness, he consummates his marriage with the wrong woman. And he wakes up the next day to discover that, you know, he's been tricked. And he's not happy about it. And the father-in-law says, well, you know, around these parts, we marry the older one off before the younger one. So if you want to work another seven years, you can have the other one too. Which he does, but he resents his father-in-law and Leah. Dysfunctional. Okay, but it's worse than that because God closes the womb of Rachel. Did you hear that? Because that's intentional. That sounds like God's in charge of everything. And it's painful. 
But he opens the womb of Leah, and Leah has child after child after child after child with Jacob. And so imagine the rivalry between these two women because, you know, you've got Leah over here who has all of Jacob's children, of which Rachel is intensely jealous. And then you have Rachel over here who has all of Jacob's love, of which Leah is intensely jealous. And this is the way it continues for years until finally God opens the womb of Rachel and he allows Rachel to have a son. And what does Jacob do? Guys, he rejoices in a way that he has not rejoiced over any of the children of Leah. And he says, you know what? This woman, Leah, never wanted to marry her. You know what? This woman, Leah, I still don't love her. You know what? The children of this woman, Leah, I would never have even had them but for the fact that I was tricked into marrying her. So this firstborn son of the only wife I ever wanted is going to become my primary heir. He's going to become the leader of the family instead of my actual firstborn son by Leah. And just to let the world know, including all these guys and everyone else and anybody that we interact with, I'm going to have this special coat of many colors made and I'm going to dress up Joseph in this thing. And the whole world understood in that day that even though these guys are 19 and he's nine, he's the man. All right. Just stop and think about that for a second. That ain't easy for anybody. There is plenty of hurt to go around in that whole equation. But think about Joseph. Like, well, what, what did he do to deserve all this? Like, he's just born into this, you know? Who does he play with? I mean, he doesn't live in a neighborhood like Rio Vista or one of our neighborhoods, perhaps. You know, it's not like he goes, hey, I'm going to go down to Jimmy's. You know, we're going to play video games, right? Like whatever. I mean, that's, that's not the way it worked. I'm sure that some of the servants that were a part of the major, huge household of Jacob had some kids and maybe he played with those kids and so forth. Okay, fine. But he's still like the king and all of his brothers pick on him. All of his brothers knock him over in the hallway. All of his brothers love to play tackle football with Joseph. You get the idea? All of them want to wrestle him. When dad goes out of town, they put him and lock him in a closet, you know, like in the dark for a week or It's just awful being him. And who does he go to for comfort? His dad, that's an obvious one. His mom, yeah, but only for a while. You see, his mother dies while he's young, giving birth to the 12th son of Jacob. A lot of tragedy in this kid's life. A lot of difficulty for this young man. And where is God? Is he over here going, oh my goodness. They're beating him up again. No. He's in it with him. Even if he feels like he's over there, which at times he does. So it just gets worse from there. His brothers, who are really, frankly, awful people at the beginning of their lives, like they, they get it figured out by the end, but I mean like at the end. But these are evil, awful guys. So they go off and they do some evil, awful thing. We don't know what it is. But we know that it's so bad that poor Joseph, who finds out about it, and who does not want any more grief with his brothers, feels like, you know what, this is so bad, it's worth the extra grief. We've got to deal with this as a family, clear our name, whatever the case may be. He goes to dad. Dad hears about it. Dad comes down on the brothers. The brothers hate him all the more. Then it gets worse because God comes and he gives Joseph not one but two visions from God, two dreams. So now it's not just Jacob, the father who's favoring Joseph. 
It's God who's favoring Joseph. And in the dream, which the brothers find out about, what are they all doing? Because it's the last thing in the entire world any of them want to do. They're bowing at the feet of Joseph. In fact, they so hate that idea that they seek to undo the plan of God as revealed through those dreams by murdering their brother Joseph. They're like, we're going to kill him. We're darn sure not bowing. So just kill him. That guarantees we don't have to bow. I mean, you know, there's sibling rivalry, right? Like, I mean, we've all got issues. But we're going to murder him? Where's God? Is he over here? Heating up for Joseph down there. Man, I hope, you know, Jacob figures this out. Somebody's going to have to come through for him. Now he's... He's in it with him. His brothers take the flocks and herds of their dad and they travel off looking for grazing land and, and they go a long way from home. And they stay away a long time. And Jacob, who kept Joseph home because I'm sure he's aware of the tension, of the threat, finally grows concerned enough about all these other guys and all of his wealth, which is mostly walking around on four legs, that he says to Joseph, look, I've got a bad hip. I need you to go find your brothers. And so he does. And they see him coming, the multicolored coat, you know, and they said, guys, we've decided to kill him. This is the moment. This is our chance. They take him, they seize him, they strip him, they throw him in this hole in the ground, which is a cistern. It's like a, it's a water tank under the ground. And they sit down and they have lunch while Joseph, it says, is crying out for his life begging them to let him live as he listens to how, like all the different plans for how they can kill him and then explain this to their dad. And where's God? He's in the pit. It's a remarkable thought. So a caravan comes by, spice traders go into Egypt and one of the brothers says, all right, so yeah, I think I got a better idea. Why kill him? Let's make money on him. Let's sell him to these guys as a slave. They'll take him down to Egypt and sell him at a profit, you know, as a slave. We'll take the money so we get something out of the deal and he's out of our lives forever. Good? They're all like, yep, let's do it. That's exactly what happens. So they sell him as a slave and they take a goat. They kill the goat. They dip his special coat in the blood of the goat. They go home and they show it to their dad and say, oh, we found it on the road is this your son's? And he concludes that, that, that Joseph has been devoured by wild animals, which, you know, I think he has. I don't think he's far off. Meanwhile, Joseph is on his way to Egypt. And where is God? Because he's not over here. Holy cow, now he's going to Egypt. Good grief, we just keep going from bad to worse. What do you think is going to happen next to Joseph? He's right here. And you're like, Tom, you've said this like five times. It's getting annoying at this point. Like, how do you know that that's the case? Because the, the text tells us. Like, it stops right there. Because it knows at this point we're going, are you over here? You know. In Genesis 39, verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. And his plans and his purposes for Joseph, you know, were like a train in Germany. Like, it's just running on time, man. It's just running on time. 
And the train is being advanced. How? By God, how? How? Through the actions, through the conduct, through the words of sinful, broken people, and through events that are particularly and uniquely devastating to Joseph in the moment. No question. And so if you know the story, God prospers Joseph. He's sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar recognizes the kid is administratively gifted. He sets him in charge of his whole household, everybody and everything except his wife. But the wife starts coming on to Joseph day after day. And I love this. He's like 17 or 18, right? He rebuffs her day after day after day. He remains faithful to God, even though if you just consider the narrative of his life up until now, almost every detail of it says that God has been unfaithful to him. Or at the very least, he's over here somewhere going, what are we going to do with this guy? Joseph doesn't believe that. And that makes all the difference. All the difference in the world. That is hope for deliverance. That is hope for comfort. That is hope for redemption, that something good will come out of it. All the difference of the world, if you're in a pit or wherever, is found in this reality that he's not out there. He's here and somehow he's orchestrating this for an eternal good. Anyway, one day the the wife sets the trap for Joseph, sends everybody out of the house. He comes in. He's on time too. She comes on to him. He says no. She grabs his coat. He's like, you know what? Keep it. You know? And then he just runs out the front door. And at this point, she realizes, I'm never going to have this guy. And it enraged her. So she screams bloody murder. Everybody races in the house. What's going on? She's like, this guy, Joseph, this person tried to rape me. Here is his coat. It's the evidence. And now, where is Joseph? He's put into probably what was in that moment in history the most maximum security prison in the world. The word that describes it is a word that's used to describe a pit. It's an underground facility. It's the dungeon underneath the palace of Pharaoh. So for doing the right thing again, there's his reward. And he's there for years. And where's God? He's with him. It says that again, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph like the train is running perfectly on schedule. It's remarkable, but here again, the Lord prospers Joseph. He gives him the favor of the prison warden. He ends up running the jail. You're like, well, good for Joseph. Listen, you know, let's not get carried away with that, okay? It's not like he gets a 401k and health insurance and three weeks vacation. Like, he's in the maximum security prison. It's preferable, I guess, if you're there. But it's not good to be there. Or at least it doesn't feel good. It actually is good for him. So one day, two very important prisoners arrive. Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker. And then he realizes shortly thereafter that these guys are looking discouraged. He's like, what, what, what's going on? Why, why are you guys down? And they say, well, you know, each of us last night had a dream, had a vision from God. And what does Joseph say? Because it's so telling. He says, well, tell me your dreams. You know, God has given me the ability to interpret dreams. Now, what does that mean? It means that notwithstanding the fact that every possible interpretation of the circumstances of his life seem to indicate that God has been unfaithful to him, that God has abandoned him, that God is out there somewhere and for whatever reason is completely disconnected to what's going on, that these dreams that he had are never possibly going to come true. Brothers are going to bow before him. First of all, they would rather die. Secondly, 
he's in the maximum security prison, like, you know, like in the world, and no shot of getting out. Nevertheless, he must still believe that, or otherwise he'd probably say something like, well, guys, I'm so sorry, I used to think I had this gift. But I don't, so... Maybe somebody else here can help you. No, he's like, no, no, no. Tell me your dreams. I'll interpret them for you. So he does. He says, all right, so dream number one, cupbearer. Three days, you get your job back. Good news. Okay, dream number two, chief baker. Three days, Pharaoh is going to cut your head off. He's going to hang your body on a tree. And then the birds of the air, like the vultures and whatnot, are going to eat your flesh, you know, so like... You might want to get your affairs in order. And if you need a will, it's a prison, so there's lots of lawyers. We can hook you up. Um, It's not going to be a problem. And then he grabs the cupbearer and he says, look, let let me just kind of recount all of the injustice of my life with you for a minute. Let me just unload my story on you, okay? Let me tell you how unfair and unjust it is that I'm here right now, when you get, I've been here for years, like when you get out of here, only Pharaoh can get me out of this. It's his prison. Remember me, talk to him for me, put in a good word with the man, you know, like, you know what happens? He's forgotten for two more years. Like probably the first week he's going, I wonder if he's talked to him yet. You know, like maybe the first month. Well, maybe he just hasn't found the right words, you know. Maybe, I I mean, like at some point, having gotten his hope up, he's just crushed. And where is the Lord? Here? No. He's here. And the train is on time. Pharaoh has two dreams. Cupbearer goes, oh, wait a minute. There's a guy that can interpret dreams. Because none of the Pharaoh's, you know, people can do it. He's like, I got a guy, I met him in prison. And so, sure enough, they call Joseph up from the prison. Pharaoh relates the dreams. And what does Joseph do? He faithfully interprets them. He says, so so seven years of great abundance is coming, followed by seven years of famine, which is utter death sentence, devastation, not just on Egypt, but the whole world. And then he goes beyond that. And he says, so this is a real business opportunity for you. If you do this, and he gives him this plan by which to store up in the years of plenty and dole it out carefully and strategically in the years of famine, Pharaoh, you're going to end up owning everything and everyone. And Pharaoh is so impressed with the kid who just got out of prison that he says, you know, look, I know you were just in prison and I've known you for 20 minutes, but who else is like you? You have the job. You got the plan. Now you have the job. I'm going to place everyone in Egypt except me under you. Get to work. And he does. He stores it up. And then when the famine comes, he begins to dole it out. And you know what happens. The famine extends beyond Egypt to the land of Canaan where his father and brothers all live. And the brothers come and the brothers bow. It's remarkable. And what does Joseph say? He gives his commentary on the whole thing. Genesis 50, verse 20. Speaking to his brothers, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. And that's the way it works, isn't it? 
Evil people mean evil against us at times, right? Evil people do evil things. Foolish people do foolish things. Careless people do careless things. Selfish people do selfish things. We all know this because we are those people. Like, we do those things. We do them to other people. We do them to ourselves. But it doesn't mean there's no hope when these things happen to us. Instead, if God is in control of all of those things, if he's ordained them, if he's either caused them or, more likely, allowed them, because the scriptures come and make it very clear that God cannot be charged with evil. But he does use it which means that out of it, good can come and will. He says, as for you, you guys, hey, I'm just going to be honest with you. You meant evil against me. That's clear. But God, who's not out there, but right here. God meant it for good. And in his case, the good was obvious. He meant it to bring it about that many people should be kept alive through the famine as they are today. Guys, the Bible comes to us with a God who not only created all things, who, who not only sustains all things, who's not only you know, involved in all things, but who actively controls everything. And who, though he is not the cause of evil, uses it. He uses it for good in the lives of his people. And it seems to me that until we make peace with that, We will not be at peace. But when we make peace with that, I think that is the place of peace. It's realizing that our hands are in the hands of the Father and that his heart is kind and that he is good, even in the difficult times, even in the pits. You know, Hannah Whithall Smith has written a book that my wife Beth is working through with a bunch of ladies here in the church and I've been reading and it's really good. And she talks about this idea of God being in everything, okay? And she analogizes our relationship to God to the relationship that a mother has with her child when the child is sick and the mom is going to give the child medicine. And she said, you know, I mean, think about the way that works for a second. The medicine is entirely contained within the medicine bottle. The medicine bottle doesn't give the medicine. The mom does. And the mom only does it when she is absolutely convinced that this medicine, which is going to taste crummy, can we just agree on that? Like, I mean, there are so many things we have been able as humanity to figure out, but good-tasting medicine is not one of them. So anyway, she's not going to give it until she's absolutely convinced that this is what's going to help. Like, this is uniquely designed to combat the illness of my child. But when she is convinced of that, and some of you guys have done this, I've done this, like, you're going to give the medicine over the protest of the kid if necessary. So she sets it all up, and then she says this. She says, the people around us, to which I think you could add, and the things that happen to us, expected and unexpected, that we take out our little pens and we write bad, and that we label, (laughs) certainly hurtful. She says, the people around us and the things that happen to us are often the bottles that hold our medicine, but it is our Father's hand of love that pours out the medicine and compels us to drink it. The human bottle is the second cause of our trial. It's just the thing that holds the medicine. The medicine that these human bottles hold is prescribed for us and given to us by the great physician of our souls who's seeking to heal all of our spiritual diseases. And so she asks, will we then rebel against the human bottles? I reject you. I fight against you. I resent you. Will we then rebel against the human bottles 
She says, will we not rather take thankfully from our father's hand the medicine that they contain? We must lose sight, she says, of the second cause, the bottle, and say joyfully, thy will be done in everything that comes to us, no matter what that will is. Seeing our Father in everything makes life one long thanksgiving and gives a rest of heart. And more than that, it gives a joyfulness that cannot be described and that cannot, in truth, be found anywhere else. Either he's entirely involved or there's no hope for deliverance, joy, peace, comfort, meaning, purpose, or so forth. And the message of the Bible again and again and again is he's right there. So I close with two questions and I'm done. Who or what is your medicine bottle right now? And secondly, what will you do with it? What will you do with it? I pray that God will give us all faith as difficult as it is to say, Lord, here it is. I can't change it anyway. Let me experience you in it. Let me know your strength and perspective. Let me find and and experience your presence. God, if I've got to pay this price, let me see the good and believe it's there. It's that faith that pulls you through. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, that we do not serve a God who is distant, but who instead is near. That we do not serve a God who is a tyrant, who is self-seeking, a king who reigns and rules over us that he might enlist us in his army and send us out to die for him, but instead, one who has come and in Jesus has suffered and died for us. You know our suffering and you enter in to it with us. Lord, we thank you that the price of the suffering that we pay in this world, the indignities that we experience, the ways that we are victimized, the losses we sustain, that they are not all for naught, that we are not random accident victims, that there's no way that justice is ever going to occur. No, no, justice is coming. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. God, we thank you that your heart is kind and that it is true. Lord, that it is your business to overcome evil with good, death with life. And so, Lord, give us faith now to embrace you in the midst of our difficult things. And give us eyes of faith that look for the good. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.